I V M. The Inheritors Podcast Series by Bloomberg Quint. Welcome to The Inheritors, a podcast series by Bloomberg Quint. I am Sonu Bhasin, and today I am in conversation with Jaspal Sani, chairman of the Eagle Group. You know, he took the name of his group inspired by one of his business partners, FC Mehra. FC Mehra used to make films under the banner of Eagle Films. More about that in my conversation with Jaspal. But before we take you there, let me say that Jaspal embodies the spirit of entrepreneurship, or as he calls it, the pioneering spirit. He was the first to import minibars for hotels in India. He was the first dealer of Scotch Guard in India. And he continues to be a partner in the iconic Plaza Cinema of Delhi. Let me warn you, Jaspal is a great storyteller and I am sure that you will enjoy his stories in the conversation. So let's go straight ahead to the boardroom of his office in Delhi and start the conversation. So hi Jaspal, uh, lovely to have you on the podcast and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thank you, Sono. Um, nice for you to drop in and uh, uh, what do you really wish to talk about? You know what, since we have talked before, uh, your story is actually quite incredible. And you know, the way that your family came from Pakistan with actually nothing and how the family built its business and how you yourself built the business. I think it's a fascinating story. So why don't you just take us through how the family moved from Pakistan to India, to Delhi, you know, during the partition days. And let's just start from there. Okay, so no, what I'm uh, really looking at, uh, well, you're talking about the inheritors. Now, uh, people may find that or think that once you've inherited something, you've got it all, and there's nothing you can uh, do wrong, and you're made for life. Actually, life is not about that. At every time, what I've seen, that with every generation, with every decade, with every, I would say, 20 years, uh, circumstances change, your journey changes, you've got to improvise, you've got to improve, you've got to take stock of what's happening. You cannot just stick to what you were doing. I, I always uh, tell everybody, uh, I'm third generation uh, entrepreneur. What my grandfather did, my father did not. What my father did, my elder brother did not. <clears throat> what my elder brother did, I did not. And what I did, my children are not doing the same. So at every point of life, life is dynamic. Business is dynamic. Uh, inheritance really uh, gives you a platform, no more, no less. So. Uh, as you said, let's start at 1947 or just pre-1947. I think uh, uh, we come from a family which is not uh, afraid to improvise, not afraid to take chances. Uh, my grandfather lived in a small village in Pakistan about 25 kilometers from uh, Rawalpindi. In fact, what I'm told is in those days, even the road was not Pakka, it was a Kacha road. In Rawalpindi, you mean to say that the road Outside the outside, 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 out
So my grandfather used to, I'm told, run a trading business there in a small village. And he felt uh, that the environment was not big enough for him. So he made the journey to Peshawar, Kent. Uh, Peshawar, Kent in those days was uh, bustling with the British. Uh, the British uh, uh, had a fairly large uh, containment and contingent of uh, army officers and he first set up shop there uh, and developed something called the Kabadi market. Kabadi market as we know the Kabadi market. That's absolutely right. right. Mm -hmm. So he would buy uh, trucks and buses which uh, had done their useful life dismantle them and sell those parts to people or the serviceable parts to whoever wanted it. Uh, he found that a good business and then he invited his friends, family from Peshawar and he founded the what is called the Kabadi Bazaar in Peshawar camp. It still exists? Kabadi Bazaar? Uh, it still exists except now it's a jewelry market. Really? From Kabad to jewelry? That's right. Uh, the reason was that uh, at the corner of Kabadi Mark, uh, the, the road was what they called Gora Bazaar. Now, Gora Bazaar was where the uh, British uh, people, they would buy anything and everything. So when my grandfather had uh, made his small capital, he put up or perhaps purchased a four-story building and he would sell anything and everything what the Goras wanted. In the so, Gora market? In the, yeah, that, that is at the corner of the Gora Bazaar and the Kabadi market, market, which today is a jewelry market. In fact, in, uh, uh, sometime back, about eight, nine years back, I, I did go back and visit the place. And uh, I was overwhelmed at what I saw. Yeah. So, um, my uh, father grew up as a young lad under his father and he would sell bidder balls and bow ties, uh, saddles, shoes, uh, whatever the Goras really wanted. And uh, even though he was not very good at uh, written English, I, I don't think he had any formal training of written English, but he was fluent in spoken English because his customers were all the Britishers. So that's where he grew up. And, uh, but that's not really what he did. Uh, he got an opportunity to, he got an opportunity in 1944 or 1945 to run a con uh, trucking contract in Iran from uh, Mashhad, which is a small town in uh, Iran, ferrying things to Tehran and back. Tehran, of course, the capital of Iran. Now, how he got that contract is uh, as a mystery because in those days there were no telephones, no televisions, uh, hardly telexes, that means writing letters. So he arrived at uh, Mashhad with a small contingent of trucks and found that the, the, the British company which had given him the contract actually didn't exist anymore. They had gone bankrupt. Right. So what did he do? He used his 
uh, powers of improvisation and improvement. He found out who the Gora was, who was uh, instrumental to giving the trucking contract. So he went to the market, purchased, and he was a good Scotch. He's a good uh, lover of Scotch whiskey, and knew that every Britisher loved his bottle of Scotch whiskey. So he went to the market, picked out whichever best quality uh, Scotch he could find, knocked on the major's uh, door, introduced himself, and said that he had a trucking contract from a British company which didn't exist. So I'm told he, they both sat down, bought down the bottle of whiskey, and he then came away with a contract in his name to do the actual contract which he was supposed to be doing a subcontract for, which actually means he had a bigger market. So that is the way he took his first large step forward. And my mother intimates to me that in a matter of four years, uh, when uh, the World War finished, so actually that means he would have gone to Marshall in 40, not in 44. That means in 44 he would have finished his money-making spree. Uh, my mother tells me that he returned back home with 20 lakhs Indian cash. Cash. Which, which... In the truck. Uh, by train, by train. By well, train. partly by bus, partly by train. Uh, you must remember Sonu, uh, in those days, one rupee equaled one dollar, which means he had in cash two million US dollars worth of profit. Well, yeah. So you can imagine what he could have done in Peshawar, except in 1947 the partition took place. And whatever we had and whatever he was building with that little fortune in Peshawar got left behind. So he had to move again and improvise, improve in a country which is brand new to him. He, had, he didn't have any running business in uh, in, in India, uh, except again through his British contracts he had come to know that there were some uh, disposal dumps, army disposal dumps available in Assam. So since he had a, quite a bit of cash on him, he could afford to go there and dip for the entire lot, which was not possible for everybody. So I'm told what he used to do is bid for the lot, lot, break it down into smaller lots, sell half of it there, carry the rest to Calcutta. Whatever he could sell in Calcutta, he would do the same, balance carry it to Delhi. And whatever he couldn't sell in Delhi, he would take back to Peshawar, which was his hometown. So actually, we only had a warehouse in Delhi when the whole Holocaust took place. I was a baby in arms, about six months of age, perhaps even four or five months. Thought this was a short-term uh, problem. And uh, once the two uh, administrations sat down and got down to administering their uh, countries, people could coexist in Pakistan and people could coexist in India, yeah. which unfortunately did not turn out to be so. So, um, what I'm told, they packed baggage for about 10 days, went to uh, Lahore. They found things in Lahore 
were not any better than Peshawar. They just kept on driving in the car. I think they had two cars at that time. Uh, all the way to Delhi. Of course, we didn't have a home in Delhi. So the option was to either go to the camps, which were dirty, filthy, uh, overcrowded. Uh, again, the elders improvised. They found very close to our warehouse, which is on Roshra Road. Fortunately, we still own that property. Yet. Uh, just opposite, there was a flat on the first floor, which was lying vacant. Vacant as in there were no living people, there were dead people strewn around. Probably some unfortunate uh, Muslim family had got hacked. So the women went around uh, cleaning the floors and the men went around removing the dead bodies and that's where we moved in to a three-room apartment, not a three-bedroom apartment, a three-room apartment from a palatial home in Peshawar Kent, which, as I said, I revisited on one acre of land and I, I think it should have about 20, 22 bedrooms. Yeah. So we confined ourselves to three homes. And how big was the family at that time? Uh, how many of you moved in the two cars? Um, my Tayaji and my grandmother came later because they were very confident that nobody could touch a hair on their body. I mean, they had lived in Peshawar country for literally years. So let's say there would be my uh, Taiji, uh, my mother, father, three, uh, we, three children, uh, six, my cousins, another three, nine, and my chacha ji. That's ten people. So ten people crowded into a three-room uh, affair, and we lived there until 1953. That means for seven years, until uh, my father and his elder brother who ultimately was rescued by the Indian Army in Peshawar, brought back in an army truck. And fortunately, we moved into a palatial home on Bangalore Road, uh, again having 12 bedrooms, and that's where I grew up. That's where you grew up. So your uh, grandmother and uh, uh, the other person who stayed behind, Mataji, who stayed behind, were rescued they, by the army. They were able to then come yes, back yes, to yes, uh, India. And it's it's actually quite interesting that you said that uh, people then didn't believe that this was going to last, and they packed only ten, you know, uh, enough stuff for ten days, and they came to India. It, See, it must I, have been traumatic for the family. I, I mean, uh, not only for the family, I mean, anybody who studies history uh, will vouch for the traumatic conditions in North India. We see the movies and we see the photos about one set of people going from India to Pakistan, the other set of people going from Pakistan to India. I don't think anybody had foreseen such an exodus. Right. I think uh, it just happened and kept on happening and kept on happening and getting bigger and worse 
and uh, until the point where uh, there was so animos there was such amount of animosity that it was uh, uh, a stage of uh, no return right. there was, i i i think uh, the happenings and almost everybody in north india lost somebody or the or the other within the family so the the reconciliation just couldn't take place yeah so you're right when you say that it was traumatic for everybody but what stands out during that time and after is the spirit of entrepreneurship that the people who came from what is now pakistan into india they actually had to leave everything behind like your family did but the way that they were able to build upon what they had with them which was their spirit their spirit of entrepreneurship and the never you know say die attitude i find that you know whenever we talk about the history of india we kind of overlook the contribution of people who came from across the border and set up businesses set up new enterprises and over a period of time actually contributed greatly to the economy so your father also and your uncle also uh were part of that uh, entrepreneur who who made actually something from nothing so, so how did the how did the business then did they stay in the same uh large area that uh, of business that they were in in the trucking and you know logistics or did they do something different uh again uh, i repeat so no that the only thing which the inheritors or the entrepreneurially uh, inheritors can really take advantage of is the pioneering spirit yeah uh to case a point say if i was to go back when i joined business in 1969 1970 a crore rupees was a huge amount of money absolutely today if i were to give my son a crore rupees he couldn't do anything with it he couldn't start a business with a crore rupees he couldn't start he couldn't find a flat for himself to stay in with a crore rupees he couldn't find an office to buy for a crore rupees so every inheritor needs to reinvent himself right because the inflation is going to eat away whatever he inherits no matter what amount it is today it could be a billion dollars i don't believe that a billion dollars will be as important say 30 years from today as it is today so if the each generation is unable to improvise and again uh, to me is the pioneering spirit right. so uh then my uh, father with his uh, two brothers set up set out shop in india unfortunately my father died fairly young in 1958 and the entire responsibility of raising uh three siblings fell on the shoulder of my elder brother uh okay we he did have some capital 
which, uh, as I said, over a period of time depreciates. But he did what he best he could. He uh, uh, he had had inherited a financing company, a higher purchase financing company, where he would give money on interest to the truckers because the truckers in those days, you see, the banks were not so efficient. The truckers were not getting loans to buy the trucks. So here was an enterprise which gave loans to the truckers. Uh, okay, and he in turn could borrow from the bank because the bank, he was able to give these securities to the bank in form of uh, landed property, etc. Right. So he made money there. Then over a period of time, he found the banks were actually starting to lend money to the truckers. So as a result of which, naturally, when he was borrowing money at 12%, he had to lend higher than 12%, including his uh, uh, overheads, whilst the bank were lending directly to the truckers at 12%. So the good truckers would go to the bank, the bad truckers remained with him, which meant it was not a good business over a period of time. So he decided to cash out and he bought himself into two iconic properties, one in Delhi called the PVR Plaza Cinema. At that time, it was called was Plaza. The Plaza Cinema. PVR came much later, I'm yes. sure. And uh, the Minerva Cinema in Bombay. Uh, of course. So, did he was he very fond of films, or did he just see it as a business opportunity? Yeah, totally as a business opportunity because by that time my Chachaji had set up the same higher purchase business in Bombay. Right. So my Chachaji was uh, rubbing shoulders with all the filmmakers, the film uh, actors, uh, Dilip Kumar, Raj Kapoorji, and the like. Uh, they were in touch with film producers on one of the big film producers was Mr. F.C. Mera and uh, there came this opportunity where Mr. K.K. Modi who owned a string of uh, uh, cinema halls wished to disinvest. So the proposal came their way to invest into the Plaza Cinema in Kunar Place, the property of Plaza Cinema, not just the uh, movie hall. Uh, as well as the property of Nerva Cinema in Bombay at a sum of, for a sum of 50 lakhs of rupees. Now again 50 lakhs of rupees in 1964 was a huge sum of money. So these five people or initially there were four people and uh, what I recall they were... So there were four people, that was your brother? That was my brother, my Chachaji, Mr. F.C. Mehra and uh, one gentleman called Mr. Gurdyal Singh who was a wizard at the repairing truck. So uh, they got together and they uh, went in and they were successful in uh, giving the bid that Mr. Modi wanted. And at an age, they were just about 35 years each at that time. So you can imagine buying, I mean, if I was to uh, look at the property value of a plaza today and Minerva today, say about 200 crores, 
I can't think of many people who could get together at 200 crores at the age of 35. But they came together and uh, then Mr. F.C. Mehra, of course, proposed that Mr. Shami Kapoor also join the gang of four, which actually became the gang of five. So again, improvising, improving, the pioneering spirit, seeing an opportunity and grabbing it and going forward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's what they did. When I entered business in 1969. But let me just stop you here. Let me just go back to the, uh, the, uh, the time of that Plaza Cinema and Minerva were bought. Uh, wasn't there an interesting story about how money was transferred to each other in the presence of a court, in the presence of a judge? Yes, yes. That uh, Sono is a very interesting story. That uh, Mr. Modi had actually taken uh, loans against these theatres. So actually these theatres were pledged to a third party. I think that was... Uh, uh, some Nizam something from Hyderabad, not the not but the somebody from their family. And uh, that is documented in the purchase deed. So, now we couldn't make payment to Mr. Modi until he had made, pay, uh, made payment to his creditors. And uh, the title wouldn't pass to us. So, these five people got together and uh, along with Mr. Modi and along with the uh, creditor of Mr. Modi, they approached the court in Bombay to resolve the issue, which the court obliged. So, on a given day, at the sum of whatever 30, 40, 50 lakhs of rupees was brought in trunks. You must remember in those days, there were very few 1,000 rupee notes. I'm sure there must have been more in 100 rupee notes, maybe even less. And uh, it must have taken them a considerable amount of time to count them in the court. So actually in the court, the money was taken in cash by these five uh, entrepreneurs given to Mr. Modi, who in turn transferred, gave it to the creditors. The creditors thereafter signed uh, a deed saying that the property was now free and Mr. Modi thereafter uh, signed it over to these five gentlemen. Uh, except there was a hitch, there was even more interest uh, in that, that the theatre in Bombay, which was the actual valuable theatre amongst the two, which is the Plaza Cinema, was uh, given on a 10-year lease to 20th Century Fox. The producers? The big Hollywood producers. So actually, the uh, even though the property passed in name to these five gentlemen, the key was still with 12th century Fox. And as per those <coughs> laws, it was not necessary <coughs> or incumbent 
on the tenant to give, give the property back. They could, they could simply drag on cases and uh, we could be uh, uh, stuck with no property, no money for years. But uh, these gentlemen did their homework in advance. They had approached 20th Century Fox. They had got the MD of 20th Century Fox in India, a gentleman called Mr. Prabhu, a very, very likable person. Uh, I remember meeting him in Bombay. And uh, uh, he asked just for 24 hours to revert back to them what would be the status on the day that uh, the lease expired. Uh, after checking with his bosses way back in uh, either New York or Hollywood, I wouldn't know where they, uh, the, the uh, bosses sat, but uh, he gave an uh, affirmative nod. He says, we, he, he uh, in his uh, first person scenario said, we are an American company. We uh, carry out what we promised and we had promised to finish the lease on a certain date and on that date the key would be given. And true enough, on the midnight of uh, 1964, I think uh, December, some date, the key was handed over. over. And so the property did become December, I think, 15th this year would be five, 55 years when the key of uh, the property was handed to us and I'm in touch with the, uh, with the inheritors of the original five people and we intend to celebrate this year. That's that a fascinating story but you know what stands out is that the uh, cash doesn't leave your family. I mean, it traveled all the way from the Middle East to Peshawar, and then it had to be brought to the uh, court to uh, enable you to buy the property. But after this, uh, you grew up seeing your father um, in this kind of a business, uh, your uncle in this kind of a business. And then were you also initiated into this uh, family business or did you want to strike out on your own? Well, yes, I was initiated into the family business, but not this family business. And as I said, that every generation needs to improve and improvise. I would say that really something which was a hell of a lot of money in those days. Uh, I, I could proudly say that all these five families now, whatever they get from this theater, is just part of what they are making. They're making much more in their uh, individual uh, businesses. For example, the children of Mr. F. Simera, they uh, themselves became very uh, renowned uh, film producers, film directors. Mr. Meradev never did any direction on his own, but his children are very famous film directors. They have directed all the big names from Shah Rukh Khan to Sunny Diol. They've made movies with them. Uh, we ourselves went into uh, different businesses. Uh, I actually was inducted into a very a small family business manufacturing furniture. Uh, this was started with my by my bhabi, uh, my eldest brother's wife, as a hobby because when she helped my uh, elder brother renovate the Plaza Cinema, 
selling more kitchen equipment than the mini bar. And I found this was a fascinating product because it has no moving parts. That makes it ideal for the hotel bedroom where a person who's paying a lot of money, he doesn't want sound and sound of the compressor going on and off. That's why uh, bedrooms don't really have the normal refrigerators. And in those days, since the mini bars were not there, we were using uh, normal refrigerators in the hotel bedrooms, which would make a noise, which would form ice and defrost, and the, and the water would come and uh, destroy, the destroy the carpets. So uh, we carried on that uh, spirit of bringing new uh, products and technologies. And uh, it took me 12 months to sell my first minibar, or the first lot of 250 minibars, to the Obra Hotel in Delhi. Because it was a new product, it was a new uh, game, and uh, it, it took time to convince the people that we were one generation ahead of whatever was present. But happily enough, uh, as soon as the Oberoi accepted it, then Moria accepted it, then Ajaha accepted it, and then uh, uh, every, other hotel. every other hotel we could. I could probably say that we have put about 150,000 minibars into India. So you're yes. responsible for a lot of people getting drunk in their hotel rooms. Well, it's better to get drunk <laughs> in the hotel rooms than in the in the in the discotheque. You know, it costs less money right. and it costs uh, cause less, less damage. Yes, <laughs> right. Okay, so from uh, importing minibars to uh, you know the journey of what you're doing now. So actually, um, over a period of time, uh, we one of the hotel owners came to us and uh, uh, he said, you know, I'm looking for something called Scotch Guard. So I didn't know what the damn thing Scotch Guard was, except I read the label and, and it said that it is manufactured by 3M in USA. So we went about contacting 3M in USA, uh, and of course that's 12 hours difference, so when they are awake, we are asleep and vice versa. But we got through the, uh, to the correct person, this is, uh, dear sir, you are contacting wrong people, the people who are looking after 3M products for India are in Singapore. So that made life a lot simpler, so we went to Singapore and we got the agency for 3M to sell Scotch Guard, which we started selling to hotels. Right. Uh, then things went forward, 3M... Uh, but just for the benefit of a lot of people who may not know what Scotch Guard is, it is definitely not a form of scotch or whiskey. It's something that protects uh, the fabric and it protects uh, coating. You're absolutely right. The, the brand name Scotch was actually used by 3M for the products, including scotch tape, including uh, in those days uh, we used to have tape recorders with these ribbons which were also called scotch uh, spools or whatever. So actually scotch was something which was uh, a trade name for 3M. So yes, we would spray this onto fabrics used in five-star hotels since they underwent a lot of uh, wear and tear. 
and uh, we became the first uh, company to import uh, Scotchgard into India. Uh, then thereafter, 3M decided to shut up, set up shop in Bangalore and formed a company called Birla 3M. So initially we thought that we would be losing a market share because now they would do it on their own. Uh, except the managing director of the first Birla 3M entity called Will Scrivens, along with his deputy Ajay Nanavati, came to meet us in Delhi to find out how we could import the Gardan thing because uh, imports were so, uh, so tough. So I asked him, why should I give you my trade secret? So he said, Mr. Sani, if you give me your trade secret, you can have any territory, monopoly or in any territory that you're seeking for. So I got the territory of North India and I taught them how to import Scotch and the country. Then we carried on uh, with 3M, we distributed uh, professional me uh, media cassettes, you know, the things that people use to shoot movies and shoot TV uh, series on. Pneumatic cassettes. Uh, they were pneumatic, uh, some other names. Uh, anyhow. Some cassettes. So the cassette for shooting, then uh, we did some. Uh, some uh, media for them, <coughs> CDs, when digital media came in. So, uh, we literally did anything and everything which came our way. Um, and uh, happily enough, today we have uh, six different verticals whereby we distribute oblique, uh, manufacture oblique, give a turnkey solution, to six different verticals as diverse as the hotel industry, as diverse as the footwear manufacturing industry, as diverse as uh, the airport modernization industry. Uh, in the meantime, we learned how to cook Italian food and we have uh, three Italian restaurants which of course Sono, you've been to them, called Tonino. Um, I'm missing one uh, vertical. We also supply products to the uh, TV broadcast industry and the uh, radio broadcast right, industry. Right. So just actually as I listen to your story and I have listened to your conversations earlier, I think there's just one thing that uh, stands out for me, which is the entrepreneurship the spirit of entrepreneurship, the pioneering spirit as you call it. Because I think it is it is actually an inspirational story for a lot of people. We've heard the stories about big business people who have made it big, we know their stories. But there are people like you, your family, and there are a lot of others who actually lived that spirit of entrepreneurship and virtually have created something and something is a large thing out of nothing. So here is saluting that spirit of entrepreneurship and thank you for taking time out and speaking to the listeners of the Inheritors podcast and it's as always pleasure speaking to you and let me say it once again 
you're a great storyteller. Maybe there's a career waiting for you somewhere. Thank you so much. Since I'm going to retire from my business life very quickly, I'm looking for a job. The Inheritors Podcast Series by Bloomberg Quint. Filter coffee is a fascinating beverage. You need to pick the right beans, blend them in the right proportion, roast them to perfection, and slow brew at the right temperature to get the perfect cup. Which is exactly like great conversations as well. You need to track down the most interesting minds, get them into their zone, and settle down for an unhurried, unscripted chat. And coffee for me is always, always, always best enjoyed with friends. I'm Karthik Nagarajan, and do share my table as I meet some of the most interesting people I know and sit them down for a strong cup of coffee and an even stronger conversation. Join me every Wednesday for a freshly brewed episode. This is not frappe. This is the Filter Coffee Podcast. <laughs>